0: Well, as we come to hear God's word, let's pray together. Father, we thank you that you loved us so much that you sent your son to be our saviour. And as we explore a theme of your word today, we pray that you would bless it to us and bless this meditation to all our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. You may or may not have come across the term doublespeak, It's a word that came into fashion in recent years that pretty clearly describes what our politicians are often guilty of. That is, using words to baffle, to confound, to give pat answers, to hide what they don't want to say, to escape difficult questions. Given that this is the case with the majority of our pollies, it's often refreshing to hear someone who is not intent on waffling but getting straight to the point. No desire to confound or confuse, just to make things as clear as possible. And with that in mind, our text this morning from John 1 verse 14 does just that. And though it's only one verse... And though I'm only going to look at just the first four verses, the first four words of that verse, it gets straight to the point. It sums up precisely and concisely the whole Christmas message for us in a nutshell. Cutting through a lot of the trimmings associated with Christmas to get to the heart of the matter, the core message. You may not have considered it possible uh, to sum up, the what we believe about the birth of Jesus in just four words. Uh, but John writes in these words, "The Word became flesh." In their context, these words of verse 14 are the highest peaks of what we call John's prologue. That is his introduction to his gospel, which is the verses that Jean read for us this morning, John 1. 1 to 18. And like a card player revealing his winning hand, uh, John announces all of his main themes in the prologue. So in that prologue, verses 1 to 18, we find the very things that John likes to write about. Light and darkness, life, truth, the importance of faith, and of course the person whom John calls the Word. That person is no one less than Jesus, who's very introduced to us in the Gospel in the very first verse, where John spoke of him as the one who was with God in the beginning and was God in the beginning, giving us this amazing frame of reference to the fact that Jesus, who was born in Bethlehem, and lived among men humbly known as Jesus of Nazareth, was also he who in the very beginning was and remains God, and who came down, as we just sung, are to enter this world of woe and strife. But our focus today will be more upon these amazing four words of John's, the word became flesh. And I want to, if it's possible, to try and enable you to see something of the breadth of the span that John covers by these words. And I can only do it by giving you five words. Four words turned into five words. The word became flesh explained by these five words that follow. The first word is condescension. This is a word that describes when someone of a higher power or authority or status deliberately lowers themselves to be on the same level as someone who is poor, lowly, humble or weak. For example, it would be amazing condescension of the Queen, whom Geraldine loves, uh, to come to this church and sit with us in our hall and have a potluck shared lunch on the fourth Sunday of the month and get up and serve herself after church. Can you imagine that? Geraldine would be over the moon. Not only might she get what she might not like, but there would be none of the finery that she would be very much used to. No royal cutlery for a start. It would be an even a more amazing condescension if she pulled on the rubber gloves and shed in the dishwashing process, or grab the vacuum cleaner to clean up once everyone had gone. But there is an even more amazing condescension than that on behalf of the God who was there in the very beginning, the one who created stars, universes, galaxies, planets, the one who brought all things into existence by his word, fashioning mountains, volcanoes, and seas, He became flesh. The world has seen nothing like this before and will never see it again. Even if the Queen were to lay aside her royal robes and come to us or go and live in the poorest of the slums of India amongst the poorest of the poor, even then we have not come close. We would still have a mortal coming to the level of another mortal. But here we have the immortal coming down to the mortal, the eternal coming down to the temporary, the creator becoming the creature, the one who fashioned the laws of nature becoming subject to the laws of nature, not only to gravity and other laws of science, but to pain, to limitation in a human body, to suffering, to sorrow and to death. The second of these five words is humiliation. What we know about the birth of Jesus is, of course, shrouded in great humility. The Christmas hymns remind us poetically, even though the Bible is silent in these things, as being facts, that Jesus was laid, once he was born, in the feeding trough for the animals. A royal birth could not have taken place in more humble circumstances. But the facts about the manger, whatever we know about it, are not what we concentrate upon as the main points. They're just the supporting props that illustrate the grand and central truth of the whole matter. That here was one who was high and lifted up. Here was one who was glorious and mighty, who allowed himself to be as the poorest of the poor, as he laid aside all that was his by right to enter the world in a fashion quite opposite of what he deserved. There was no royal palace hall for Mary and her baby. It is, as Paul spoke of Jesus in Philippians 2, saying that although he was God and had every right to everything that God is and God deserves, he did not selfishly cling to those rights and hold to them and saying, I can never give these up. And the glory he knew and experienced as God, he let go of it all. He did not think of himself as, and consider that what he knew by right was something he always had to cling to, but rather willingly and freely humbled himself to become a man. And we also know that if becoming a man was not enough in the humility stakes, that Jesus was the humblest of men, the servant who went all the way to death on a cross. That's why the New Testament we are urged, brothers and sisters, to consider others before we consider ourselves, because that was the mindset that Jesus had. See, freely freely and willingly, humbled himself for us, humility to the nth degree, to the maximum. The third of these words is transition. This is a word that simply means change, a transition from one form to another. We know it when we consider the change of a caterpillar into a a butterfly, although we know that such a change has another more exact name. But here when the word became flesh, there was a transition, there was a change involved. Now here we need to be very careful, because heresy can often just be one word away from the truth. And we're walking on a slippery surface when we start talking about uh, these things. The transition involved for Jesus was not on the one hand being God and then becoming man, as if he stopped being God to become man. It was more than that. One of the earlier heresies in the earliest church was that Jesus was God and then he became man and then he became God again. And sometimes our thinking about that can be pretty fuzzy. Rather, the truth is expressed in this way. Jesus was God... And Jesus stayed God when he became man and was and is now perfectly God and man joined together. That's what he was. That's what he is. He did not lay aside his divine nature in order to assume a human nature, but rather he assumed the human nature on top of his divine nature Now, there are times when it's winter and you need a dressing gown that you put your dressing gown on. Sometimes if it's cold, if you can remember what it's like to be cold, you remember how nice it is to feel your dressing gown on over your pyjamas. You do not take your pyjamas off to put your dressing gown on or your clothes off to put your dressing gown over the top. You clothe yourself with your dressing gown. It's a long bow to draw, but it may help explain something that really is beyond our comprehension. Jesus was always God and didn't lay aside his divinity, but took humanity like a dressing gown over his divinity. The only thing he laid aside was his glory, because becoming man covered that glory in flesh. He took nothing off in order to become man, but put something on in order to become man. The hymn says, and it's right, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Veiled in flesh, see God. He didn't cease to be God, he always remained God. But in addition to being God, he added human flesh and a human soul in a frail human existence. No more better described than a baby lying in a manger. God, as Wesley put it, contracted to a span from your elbow to the tip of your middle finger. God contracted to a span. So we have transition the Word became flesh with blood and skin and hair and muscle and sinews and veins and capillaries and limbs and face and cells, fully human but fully God at the same time. Always existed as the Word, now just clothed in flesh, once the object of heaven's adoring company, but then the object of the shepherd's amazing, gazing wonder. The fourth of these words is incarnation. Theologians use this term to describe what took place when God became man. Now in John's era this was very much in dispute and it's widely understood here that John was correcting a common error of his time. Some in the church were led to believe that Jesus was not really flesh. He looked human, okay, but he was not really flesh. He was only a spirit with an earthly appearance. If you touched him, you would not actually feel flesh. Now, this view may seem quite harmless to us, but it took away from one of the fundamentals that we now cling to as one of the great truths of Scripture. If Jesus was not fully man, then he cannot fully represent us before God. He cannot pay for our sins with his blood if he is not fully man. If he's sort of in some in-between state, then we're lost. This is why John is so insistent in his letter that anyone who denied the coming of Jesus in the flesh was not to be regarded as a true teacher of the word. That's why he started in his letter, chapter 1, that which we have seen, which we have heard, that which we have touched with our hands. So this this fact that Jesus became flesh is so vital to everything that we know about Jesus. Paul tells us that it was necessary that Jesus be born of a woman and born under the law in order that he might redeem those under the law. He had to be a man. Because only a man could undo what Adam did, and only a man could take the place of men, humankind. But yet, on the other hand, he had to be God. For only as God could he make perfect atonement for our sins. The Word became flesh, not just for Christmas, but for the cross, for Easter for our salvation. The last of these words is association. When the word became flesh, he became one of us. In fact, the verse fully says, he became flesh and dwelt among us. Note the word dwelt in verse 14 is a word that could literally be translated tabernacled. That is the word became flesh and tabernacled or tented among us or camped among us. Now, I hope this is ringing a bell in your minds with respect to the Old Testament, how the people of Israel were instructed by God to build a tabernacle or a tent, which would be the place of meeting between God and men during their desert journey how God promised to meet the people of Israel in that tent through the work of the priest, how that tent or tabernacle was not a permanent fixture, but one that was to be picked up and moved to go along with the people on their journey. Now John says, the word tabernacled among us, in other words, the fullness of what the tabernacle looked forward to was found in Jesus. Just as God dwelt among his people of old, now in a greater sense, God dwells among his people again. Just as God was with his people physically, so now said God back among his people, not in a tent or a tabernacle, but in an earthly tent, in a human body. The angel said, you shall call his name Emmanuel. if not for that very reason. Emmanuel meaning, as the, the writer explains, God with us. The God who once lived among his people in a tent, now in the fullest possible sense, lived among his people in a human tent. But John goes on to say, or a few verses earlier, sorry, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. The word became flesh. Emmanuel, God with his people, just as one day in heaven he promises that he will be with us and we shall see him and we will be like him and we will never be separated from him. He will live among us and we with him. Four simple words, the word became flesh, explained now by five longer words, hopefully bringing a heavenly perspective upon an event that the world treats so superficially. Here we are talking about matters that are above us, beyond our understanding, but yet made plain through these profound and deep words of John's. Their meaning is beyond our grasp and we are left with this amazing scene, a cradle of straw with the king of kings inside. And so we have to ask the question, because it begs to be asked, why did the word become flesh? Why did Jesus come and tabernacle among us? Why did Jesus have to become a human being? Why did he have to endure what he endured? Why did he have to come from the environment that he had been in for all eternity to be part of this sinful world? Well, the answer is plain, isn't it? To bring sinners like you and like me into fellowship with the Father, the Son and the Holy Spirit The Bible and the hymns we sing have clear answers in this direction. Hark the Herald Angels Sing says, born to raise the sons of earth are born to give them second birth. Why was the word made flesh? To give us second birth, to bring us out of our sin and misery and the darkness of our condition at enmity with God into fellowship with God by the sovereign saving power of God. Philip Brooks's hymn, Little Town of Bethlehem, says, Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. What Christmas means is this that God has so loved us, even in our sin and our misery, that he was prepared to send his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, that we might know what it is to have Christ in us, the hope of glory, born in the ordinary way, but born for extraordinary purposes, born as the mighty God, yet the humblest of all, who walked the path of humility all the way to the cross, born for the salvation of the people of God, The word become flesh. What should you do? Humble yourselves. Believe God. Take his word as your anchor. Trust it. Hope in him. This is your God. This is what he has done for his people. Let's pray. Our Father and God, we thank you that as today we've explored part of your word, that you have said all that you have, done all that you have for us. We give you glory that you sent your Son to be our Saviour, We thank you that he came at the right time in the right way for the right purpose that we might be yours and yours forever. And where we look in our hearts and we find that we do not trust in these things, we do not trust your word We still trust our own selves, our own works, our own goodness. Please help us to abandon those thoughts. Help us to put our faith and trust in the one whom you sent. And we pray today on this Christmas day as it dawns across the world for people as they gather in places of worship or homes, wherever they gather, that your mighty, powerful spirit will be at work using the message of salvation, the gospel, the good news of the birth of Jesus, to change hearts, to change governments, to change lives. This is a world of sin and woe, of much darkness and strife, And we pray that in the midst of all that takes place today, though people are persecuted, your people, though refugees are shunned still, though others would think nothing at all of your great grace and spurn that wonderful grace. Lord God, we pray, send your word forth across the world today that hearts of people might be changed from every tribe, nation, and language as they come to hear of the great things that you have done. We pray especially for your people that are persecuted today, that you would draw near to them, remind them that you are the one who is close to them. And for ourselves we pray for our gatherings wherever we are, wherever we're going, whoever is coming to us. We pray especially that you'll keep us all safe wherever we travel. We pray that you'd bless our fellowship around the meals that we enjoy. Not forgetting those for whom Christmas day is a sad and lonely day. Not forgetting those who are shut in and alone, who have no family or friends. Not forgetting those who have nothing. Remembering that all that we have, you have given us, and you've given us because of your grace, not because we've earned it. It's a tough day for some today, and we pray for all who are mourning and sad because someone is missing from the table. Perhaps for the first time, we pray that in the midst of all that happens, that you would be glorified and honoured. We give you thanks that your love has been revealed to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray that you would certainly Encourage us in that grace today as we remember the word become flesh and pray that these thoughts might remain with us and strengthen our faith and our trust and our hope. Today and always we pray this through Jesus and his wonderful name. Amen. Amen.